Welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 165. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by the man himself, Mr. Mark Pearson Freeland. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, Mike. What an amazing, exciting year we've already had so far with our Entrepreneurs Series, and now looking forward into a couple of pretty amazing entrepreneurs that you and I and our listeners are digging back into. Isn't that right? Well, it's absolutely true. We are pulling out some listener favorites. And um, I couldn't think, following the Entrepreneur Series, of two bigger heavyweights, uh, two people who have so much to teach us, Mark, where are we starting this journey? Well, today, Mike and our listeners in show 165, we're digging into Paul Graham, founder of Y Combinator. And Mike, I think it's fair to say, in fact, maybe it's an understatement to say how intrinsic and pivotal Paul Graham has actually been not only in the lives of many, many entrepreneurs himself, but also all of us. And there's a chance that maybe some of our listeners, we don't actually realize how instrumental he's been in the lives and the brands that we have all around us. That's so true. Um, I think, Mark, that there's a very good chance that every single one of our 50,000 listeners have actually, are actually right now using a Y Combinator product. And they might not mm. even know that Paul Graham's behind it, but there, I mean, it would be impossible. Let, let's look at the list of companies that Paul Graham has helped create Stripe, Airbnb. I mean, just there, I think we'd have 80% of the listeners are using yeah. one of those two products, right? Yeah, I think you're right. But then if we didn't get them, maybe they're into a little bit of crypto. So we've got Coinbase, Ooh, Dropbox, Massive. a bit of a classic file sharing. And, you know, just to top it off, Reddit. These are just some of the, wait for it, 3,000 companies that have been through the Y Combinator program. And Paul is the founder of Y Combinator, and we get to learn from him today. I mean, this is very cool. It's, it's one of, he's one of those individuals, Mike, that has so much experience that even reading his work. He's got essays online. He's got a great book that's out, Hackers and Painters, Big Ideas from the Computer Age, as well as the tips and tricks that we're going to listen to in today's episode. There's so much we can learn from him that even just listening to his voice, telling some experience and some case studies and stories, we can glean so much from that because his experience is so significant in the world of entrepreneurship. I mean, it, it's quite amazing how much intrinsic value he's probably brought to those 3,000 companies. And the list that you just read out is, like you say, 80% of our listeners, including you and I, are using his products day to day. <laughs> Today, we probably use them. So what better way to learn about entrepreneurship after our entrepreneurship series than digging into Paul Graham of Y Combinator? Yeah, and he he really brings us such an enormous uh, variety of insight and wisdom that we're going to have for you today in this show. We're going to talk about, you know, the art of building an entrepreneurial idea, coming up with a product or a service, but also equally what it takes as a leader and as a team. And these are very moonshot topics. I mean, we really believe that you not only need to have a great product, but you need to grow and improve yourself as a leader, as someone who is a collaborator. And you know what? Paul Graham has got wisdom for us in both of these areas. So what a treat, huh, Mark? Yeah, an absolute treat. I can't wait to get started. Well, I think it is now time for us to delve into the world of Y Combinator, the most successful tech accelerator on the planet and their founder, Paul Graham. Let's jump in and listen to the wisdom that he has to share with us. So Chad, where do we want to kick this one off? Well, we've, uh, we've got lots of really great clips from Paul. We're just going to start with one where he's kind of trying to simply describe what Y Combinator does. What Y Combinator does is tell founders things that they ignore, right? So we tell people, don't hire too fast. And then they go off and hire too fast. And then they come back later and say, oh, I wish we'd listened. Um, but like all the things we tell people, we tell people the counterintuitive stuff, not the obvious stuff. And then what counterintuitive means is it sounds wrong. 
And so they go with their gut and do the wrong thing instead. Um, and then hopefully catch the mistake in time. It's probably not what you thought of when you thought of uh, the Harvard of bit of startups, right? <laughs> He's quite folksy, isn't he? He's almost like the Warren Buffett of startups, just very folksy and, and quite sensible. The, you know, the thing for, for me that he's really, this is why I was thinking about it as he was talking, is his wisdom and the team around him, their collective wisdom, is all about doing the right things in the right order of a startup because you have such limited resources mm-hmm. that they're constantly reminding founders of this is what you should be doing now. And, I, and from my personal experience of my own startups, helping other startups, what is so true is that your passion for your idea that you're working on can often distract you, take you off course. And the role of a Y Combinator or a coach or an advisor is always about asking questions and challenging founders to think about what are they working on the right thing now. And I, I really think that's at the core of what he's talking about, why YC does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, a coach of mine has frames it in the way of like helping me see around the next corner. So I'm kind of, I'm stuck in my alley and I've got my blinders on and I'm looking, you know, straight ahead. Yep. But yeah, the, the advantage of having that third party is they can help you see around corners and maybe even the next corner uh, to see things that you maybe haven't uh, thought about. And, you know, as you said, the the hundred billion dollar plus combined valuations of startups that have gone through Y Combinator kind of speak to the value of that, that forward thinking. But that is not the only piece of advice that, uh, Paul has to share with us. We've got so many more. Uh, another one, I think many listeners to this show, myself included, Mike, we often, I don't know, wring our hands at how, you know, how, do, how do we know if we have a good idea? How do we come up with a good idea? Mm. You know, it's so often it's about, you know, I'll, for lack of a better word, that light bulb eureka kind of moment. And, mm-hmm. you know, as tr- true to Paul's form, he has a bit of a different idea Uh, about how we should go about getting our startup ideas. The way to get startup ideas is not to try to think of startup ideas. I've written a whole essay on this, and I'm not going to repeat the whole thing here. Um, But the short version is that if you make a conscious effort to try and think of startup ideas, you will think of ideas that are not only bad, but bad and plausible sounding, meaning you and everybody else will be fooled by them, and you'll waste a lot of time before realizing they're no good. The way to come up with good startup ideas is to take a step back. Instead of trying to make a conscious effort to think of startup ideas, turn your brain into the type that has startup ideas unconsciously. In fact, so unconsciously that you don't even realize at first that they're startup ideas. This is not only possible, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, and Apple all got started this way. None of these companies were even supposed to be companies at first. They were all just side projects. The very best ideas almost have to start as side projects because they're always such outliers that your conscious mind would reject them as ideas for companies. Okay, so how do you turn your mind into the kind that has startup ideas unconsciously? One, learn a lot about things that matter. Two, work on problems that interest you. Three, with people you like and respect. That third part, incidentally, is how you get co-founders at the same time as the idea. Mm, Startup ideas and the source of them. I think it's what the learning in, in, in Paul's wisdom there is that so often people take standard problems, frame them in a very startup way and they are absent of real passion. They're often almost just grabbing the next problem for a cool new idea and to try and get funding. And what well, he wait, re- Mike, but I have the I have the Uber for dog treats idea. <laughs> That's okay because I have the Airbnb of this and that and the Kickstarter of of whatever. <laughs> the the truth here is he's sort of trying to dig at there's got to be this deep, profound 
curiosity and interest in the subject matter that made it a hobby. And, and what he didn't say, but I think he inferred, is you've probably worked on this for years and years and years before it eventually builds this natural momentum where it becomes a product or a company. And I think that's what he was poking at there, don't you, Chad? Yeah, I, I love how he takes it kind of back to first principles of like, if you just sit and try to think of startup ideas, you're going to fail because, you know, it's already been thought of and it's not as simple of a process to just invent something. You, even though my Uber for uh, dog treats may, may actually be a, a billion dollar idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting. And I, I think I'm kind of curious to hear from you, Mike, like which of the founders, entrepreneurs, innovators that we have profiled on this show like which ones of them do you feel like mm-hmm. it started as a hobby, as a side project and grew into, you know, the massive companies or media empires that many of the people we've profiled has started? I'm kind of curious if we can come up with some as, as kind of evidence of uh, Paul's maxim here. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's two people that immediately come to mind. The first of which is Warren Buffett, because he had a hobby of stock investing at the age of 11, right? Mm. So, so that's definitely in terms of very relevant adjacent one. Mm. What, what I think is also interesting, and it's not so much hobbies, but um, or side projects. Yeah, Richard Branson goes out into the world and experiences things and goes, well, geez, that sucked. Maybe there's a business that could solve this. And that's almost a hobby-like approach in that he's not sitting in a room waiting for ideas to come. He goes out into the world, does stuff and says, hmm, actually, you know, this really sucked. I think we could do it better. I think that's also very much the spirit in which Paul is talking about. Stuff that you're interested in, things that matter to you. So, Chad, when you think about all the people that we've studied, who comes to your mind? Your mind, maybe Elon Musk. He seems to be always tinkering on new sort of paradigms and science and tech. Uh, I actually can't. I'm going through our list. I can't find one that like didn't start as a hobby or side project. So we have Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia, right? He's a self-effacing dirtbag. He just wanted to go out and climb, mm-hmm. uh, and he, you know, created his own uh, forge in the back of his van to make his own climbing gear and true now it's a multi-billion dollar company eric reese Um, he he just mm -hmm. took his own failure and made it into a book right Mm -hmm. and uh let's see going down to i mean bill gates you know he uh, bugged his parents to get him into a school where he'd have access to computers and you know he he was working on uh on computers at a very very early age in 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 the computer club yeah yeah i I'm going through all of these and really can't find many of them that uh, didn't create these huge empires based on uh, on side projects or or hobbies. Yes, yes, and even even I'm just looking through the list. Joe Gebbia, maybe it wasn't so much a hob- hobby, but just a way of making rent. They they sort of got together and rented out their apartment. Mm-hmm. Sort of. I think that the lesson here is they all came from hobbies or life experiences or or uh, personal situations rather than sitting in a boardroom and just randomly coming up with ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the, the big takeout our, our audience can take, that we can take from, from Paul Graham. And um, what's really interesting is how Paul starts to, you know, at this genesis moment, he's got a lot of other rules for us. And I thought it was really interesting, Chad, that he's he's also like, you don't have to be the guru, the subject matter expert, do you? No. And you don't have, you don't have to do it at, at, you know, age 18 or 19 and, and, and have to be a Harvard dropout. Many of the clips on today's show are, are from a talk that he's giving to Stanford students you know, so these are undergraduate students that are you know, in the entrepreneurship program there at Stanford. And he gives them some very, I mean, you would think it, advice they don't or, you know, aren't willing to hear. But I think there's some, some wisdom to it. It, it. Essentially, startups are like a huge commitment. Often young people can maybe lose sight of that commitment and really just kind of want to do the new, sexy, shiny thing. So here's Paul's real advice about what it's like uh, to run a startup and maybe some of the trade-offs that come with it. 
If you start a startup, it will take over your life to a degree that you cannot imagine. Um, and if it succeeds, it will take over your life for a long time, for several years at the very least, maybe a decade, maybe the rest of your working life. So there's a real opportunity cost here. It may seem to you that Larry Page has an enviable life, but there are parts of it that are definitely unenviable. The way the world looks to him is that he started running as fast as he could at age 25, and he has not stopped to catch his breath since. Every day, shit happens within the Google empire that only the emperor can deal with, and he, as the emperor, has to deal with it. If he goes on vacation for even a week, a whole backlog of shit accumulates, and he has to bear this uncomplainingly because, number one, as the company's daddy, he can never show fear or weakness, and number two, if you're a billionaire, you get zero, actually less than zero sympathy if you complain about having a difficult life. <laughs> Which has this strange side effect that the difficulty of being a successful startup founder is concealed from almost everyone who's done it. People who win the 100 meters in the Olympics, like they walk up to them and they're going like, <laughs> right? And like Larry Page is doing that too, but you never get to see it. Starting a startup could be a component of a good life for a lot of ambitious people, but this is just part of a much bigger problem that you're trying to solve, how to have a good life, right? And though starting a startup could be a good thing to do at some point, 20 is not the optimal time to do it. There are things that, uh, that you can't, there are things you can do in your early 20s that you cannot do as well before or after, like plunge deeply into projects on a whim that seem like they'll have no payoff, um, or travel super cheaply with no sense of a deadline. In fact, those are really just isomorphic shapes in different domains. Um, for unambitious people, this sort of thing can be the dreaded failure to launch. But for the ambitious ones, it's a really valuable sort of exploration. And if you start a startup at 20 and you're sufficiently successful, you will never get to do it. Mark Zuckerberg will never get to bum around a foreign country. All right. He can do things that you can't do, like charter jets to fly him to foreign countries, really big jets. Um, but success has taken a lot of the serendipity out of his life. He, uh, Facebook is running him as much as he's running Facebook. And while it can be really cool to be in the grip of some project you consider your life's work, um, there are advantages to serendipity. And uh, among other things, it gives you more options to choose your life's work from. Mm, such wise advice, like, um, be careful what you wish for, I think is really what Paul's telling yeah. us here, Chad. Yeah, yeah. You know, he talks about uh, Larry Page and Mark Zuckerberg not being able to live the lives maybe that they might have wanted in their 20s. Yeah, and, and I don't think many startup founders really think about that uh, when they are idolizing guys like that, I think they, they dream of having that impact in the world and they probably romanticize that lifestyle. But the truth is, and I know this from firsthand experience, I did two startups in San Francisco. They were very different, very, they are totally all immersive when compared to, you know, I was uh, working in, in a big ad agency prior to that. And the lifestyles are so different. So it does take over your life. Whether you're going to be successful or whether you're going to fail, it doesn't matter. It still takes over your life, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, this cautionary tale is often just left out of the narratives. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think it's pretty obvious to us today that, well, the reaction to Elon Musk's, you know, public breakdown was just as, as Paul described, right? Like no one cares, Elon, that you have such a hard life and you're working 120 hours. You chose that life when you decided to run like four different companies trying to disrupt giant multi-billion dollar industries. And, you know, it's hard to feel bad for Mark Zuckerberg when he has to go in front of Congress and, um, you know, answer ill-informed questions by, by senators, yeah. but you know, the, you know, these entrepreneurs have created the beds in which they, they lie, but I don't, you know, I didn't choose this clip to discourage you and me, Mike, and our listeners from starting things. But, um, 
there are some sacrifices, as you as you mentioned in your own experience, that that have to be made. If like I think what Paul is saying is like if you're doing a startup, you're committing to the startup first and foremost, yes. and like yes. it's just going to take it's it's going to be your priority and just take all your time. Yeah, yeah. And you you firsthand saw when I was doing when we met, I was doing my first startup in San Francisco, and I mean you saw the epic workload that 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 created for me. Yeah, it meant that I didn't see you very often. Yeah, but but the intensity, it was such an intense two years or so, wasn't it? Yeah, but, you know, it, it was worth it for all the learnings and experience and, you know, but I think you went into that startup much wiser than the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 20-year-olds in the uh, Stanford <laughs> Auditorium. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's hope, let's hope. So the, the next thought that I think really um, helps us at the genesis of a startup, um, and this one is, is one that is very, very meaningful to me, which is put the customer, put users at the center of what you're doing. You know, if you're going to solve a problem in the world, make sure that it's a problem that you and your customers know, feel, and experience. And this next clip we're going to play is all about getting into this notion of be an expert in your customer's problem. What you need to know to succeed in a startup is not expertise in startups. What you need is expertise in your own users. Mark Zuckerberg did not succeed in Facebook because he was an expert in startups. He succeeded despite being a complete noob at startups. I mean, Facebook was first incorporated as a Florida LLC. <laughs> Even you guys know better than that. Um, he succeeded despite being a complete noob at startups because he understood his users very well. In fact, I worry it's not merely unnecessary for people to learn in detail about the mechanics of starting a startup, but possibly somewhat dangerous. Because another of the characteristic mistakes of young founders starting startups is to go through the motions of starting a startup. They come up with some plausible sounding idea. Um, they raise funding at a nice valuation. They rent a nice office in Soma, hire a bunch of their friends. And then the next step, after uh, rent a nice office in Soma and hire a bunch of their friends is gradually realize how completely fucked they are because while imitating all the outward forms of starting a startup, they have neglected the one thing that's actually essential, which is to make something people want. Mm. Yeah, Paul has this really funny term, I think that he and everyone else at, on the Y Combinator team coined called playing house. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So going through the motions of what you expect uh, startups to do, you know, I I think the uh, television show on HBO Silicon Valley does this perfectly, right? Because <laughs> it, it, it's they're not really founding a company; they're like acting as if they were founding a company, kind of going through the motions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he is just pointing us to your favorite maxim, which is just you know, focus on the user, focus on the user, focus on the user. Yeah, it it is. So, I mean, this has to be, um, so I, 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 I'm working uh, with a portfolio of 10 founders on 10 separate startups at the moment. And the, if you want to, if you put them all in a room and say for the last three, Mike, uh, three months, what has Mike been talking about the most? It would be succeed through understanding your users, because if you understand your users, you'll find a problem then you'll find a problem and work out how to solve it. And if you have that, then you can build a business and a product around that. And without that, what I really, what I really notice of the my entire career is most people start with a business idea and not with a problem to solve. And they're almost backwards engineering from a business model or a way to make money all the way back to is there actually a problem worth solving? And I think this is the best advice that Paul can give us. Be an expert in your users and the pains that they experience, the gains that they're looking for, and find out how you can relieve some of those pains and create gains for them so that, you know, not only will you build a product that they want, that you can have a, a startup 
and a business that thrives. I truly believe this is the starting point of it all. Mm. You mean I have to go out and find users for my Uber dog treats <laughs> idea? <laughs> you can be your own, you can you can be your own first customer. So Bella can can tell you if you got the right treats or not. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the founders you've been working with didn't just say, oh yeah, Mike's talking to us about customers. They're probably telling you to shut up about talking about customers so much because I know how, how focused you are on not, not only yeah, focusing yeah. on the customer, but you actually bring in customers as soon as, as possible. Um, you know, I, I've seen you bring in consumers to test out ideas when it's just an idea in a founder's mind. There's no technology, there's no web app. It's uh, just an idea on a post-it note. Yeah, and 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 firsthand though, what you and I have both witnessed in those sessions is ideas that we thought were good totally sucked as soon as users got one look at them, just one look at them. And the point here is that we will assume something that customers want and you can't guess. You have to know, you have to test and learn to get your way there. And when you do everything... Uh, becomes far more tangible, but also the path and the journey towards a great product, a great company becomes more straightforward. But I, I did find one last clip in this origin part of, of the startup journey. And I wanted to indulge us a bit here, Chad. Um, I managed to find a recording of a startup uh, that had applied to Y Combinator. This is them getting the call from Y Combinator to say that they're going to be accepted into the program, that they want to invest. And I think the background to this is that if your startup gets accepted into Y Combinator's program, the, 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 the tick of approval is enormous, isn't it, Chad? Yeah. It's, you know, while the monetary investment may not seem like a whole lot, you're getting access to all of the Y Combinator team and Paul Graham. You're getting access to all of the other startup founders in your cohort and the entire alumni network of people like Joe Gebbia from Airbnb and Drew, Drew Houston from, from Dropbox. Mm. The, the, the other practical thing is after graduation, they have demo day, they present to a room full of investors. And I think Every single startup has a follow-on investment round coming out of Y Combinator. I know there, there are even some investment uh, firms, some VCs that have a policy of trying to invest just across the entire cohort. Like they don't discriminate. They just try and get, mm -hmm. you know, 100, 250 grand into each of the, each of the companies because they're like, hey, the, if they've been selected and then nurtured by, by Paul Graham and his team, chances are it will succeed. So that's what it means. So let's now listen. Uh, this is really cute because it's a bunch of Swedish guys. They're getting the call and they're going to hear that Y Combinator wants to invest. Carl? Hey, this is Aaron Harris from YC. How are you? I'm, I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I wanted to say thanks for coming in and chatting with us today. We really, really like meeting with you. And we'd like to fund you for the next batch at YC. Uh, yeah, likewise. We really enjoyed the chat with you guys as well. And uh, we're extremely happy that you guys are going to fund us. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've seen the process that you're talking about. Uh, it is a nightmare. You guys seem to have a good take on it and good product built already. So we're excited to see what you do. Um, the a couple of things. First off, uh, you're aware of our standard deal terms. Yeah, yeah, we read them all. So, yeah, great. So it's 120,000 for 7%. Perfect. Okay, great. Yeah, so that'll just be orientation, get you guys set up in the system, start talking about the investment, all that. Okay, well, then I will see you on Thursday. Great. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, that clip never gets old, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so uh, what's really interesting, you mentioned it too, the deal terms are very simple. They, they get a small bit of the company, they invest a small bit of cash. And whilst that might be small, the impact 
and the opportunities that come from getting into Y Combinator are huge. And this all comes back to these lessons that we've been talking about so far from Paul Graham. It, this is where it all started. I wanted to take a moment. You'd mentioned it a little bit at, at the top of the show, Mike, but um, paulgram.com is a collection of all of his essays that he's been writing for years now. I actually haven't gone all the way back to the beginning of his archive. So while I haven't brought a book of his to uh, to review here on the show, I can recommend every single article that I've ever come across, or, or essay, I should say, on his website. I mean, some that come to mind that he's talking about some of the principles here and some of the clips we've shared are like, do things that don't scale. If you type that into uh, Google, his uh, essay pops right up. And mm-hmm. um, there's so many other fantastic essays that he's written. I just, I want to be sure that uh, if you're at all interested in what we've been learning from Paul thus far, uh, you really have to go and check out his essays at paulgram.com. Yeah, I I would I would say you could spend a, a month going through startupschool.org because they will do everything from getting started, finding co-founders through key things such as growth, uh, people and culture. They got a massive section on product, uh, which is really awesome. And right through to kind of second stage investing and growing the business. And it's all there for free at startupschool.org. If you want to build a new product or company, you would be crazy not to go visit this. It's full of goodies. Mm-hmm. Okay, Chad. So we've kind of got our head straight on on where to get the idea from. Be careful what you wish for. Make sure you know what what customers are looking for. That kind of frames the first half. But now... It's let's get down to business, isn't it? Let's go build a team. Let's find out what it takes to succeed, what things you need to be doing at the beginning of the company. And I think some some key warning signs if uh, of startups and if they're going in the wrong way, that's all ahead of us in the second half of the show. Chad, where should we start the getting down to business section? Where do we want to kick off? Well, it's a theme that has come up time and time again on the show, but it's really the importance of the people that you recruit, hire, retain, partner with, co-found with. <laughs> um, as Paul says it, he says, there is magic in your team. People who've uh, been friends for a while mm-hmm. um, have worked together on things, so they actually know one another's capacities. What we don't like is people who only came together for the purposes of doing this startup. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason is that that means the only thing holding them together is the startup, right? And another thing about startups that we've learned, actually I probably already knew this from doing our own, is that almost every startup has some point where it seems like the startup is doomed and worthless and there's no point anymore in, in continuing to work on it. And so if there is nothing holding this founders together besides the startup and the startup is worthless Mm -hmm. then there's nothing holding the founders together anymore and they just like quit and go off and do other things um whereas if they're close friends they will keep working on the startup even though it seems worthless Mm -hmm. in order not to let the other one down and it turns out they were wrong it wasn't worthless even though it seemed it was doomed and that every startup has a point where it seems like it's doomed and so oddly enough mistakenly continuing to work mm-hmm. out of misplaced loyalty to your pal mm-hmm. is a good thing. Yeah. Right. Because eventually things get better. Eventually things get better. If you stick together as a team, I mean, it's so, so true. And one of the things that comes to my mind, Chad, is that the learning here is what Paul Graham is telling us is guys, this is like a sports team. It's like, it's like a music band is like a rock band you got to have a bunch of guys who fundamentally like hanging out together working on stuff together that is the binding glue the the idea itself of let's do an uber for dog treats this will not hold you this will not bind you together no matter how good that idea is what will bind you together is that you guys relate to each other you connect to each other you're good buddies. Yeah, I I would be very curious to kind of backtest successful startups 
with this kind of rule in mind. I mean, certainly Brian Chesky and Joe Gibbia, you know, absolutely fit this mold. Mm -hmm. They were roommates. They needed help paying rent. So they hosted uh, San Francisco conference goers on air mattresses. You know, that is an idea that could only come from, uh, I'm sure, like late night cartoon watching over pizza and beer kind of thing, right? You know, that, um, that can only happen, you know, if, you know, in that kind of like friends uh, sitcom kind of kind of environment. Mm, mm. Same with obviously Larry and Sergey from Google. Mm-hmm. And this starts this big theme for early success. Apart from getting to know your users, you need to get to know yourself as an individual and the team around you. In fact, this whole orientation towards people is in the uh, words of Paul Graham, what we're about to hear, that the founder themselves, these things are more important than the actual startup idea. So let's have a listen to Paul Graham really pinpointing the importance of founders. Well, one thing has changed is that uh, we look more at the entrepreneur than the idea, right? We've learned that uh, what you're funding, at the stage we're funding people, like the beginning uh, the founder is more important than the idea, a lot more important. Um, so on our application form, you know, we used to have all these questions about the idea. Now we have a lot fewer questions about the idea and a lot uh, more questions about the founders and the relationship between them. Hmm. See, that's really interesting how they changed the application forms to learn more about the founders as opposed to the ideas. Cause yeah. you would think it's like, well, they want to invest in the best ideas because those will have the highest likelihood of success. Yes. But clearly that's not the case. <laughs> well, good, good for them for learning. And isn't it interesting because so much of the time the conversation is around the idea, whether you're talking about, you know, interviews, press, investment meetings, it's often about the idea, but what he's really suggesting is that founders, teamwork, and a focus on end users come before that. And I think this is the big takeaway. Focus, know your users, know your founders, uh, and the other things will come. And I think if we work really, really, really hard, success can be there. And what's interesting is we've got this other clip where Paul really sets up how a startup can succeed. So let's jump straight into him talking about startup success. So given how fast innovation seems to be happening across the country, what do startups these days need to do to have a successful exit, whether it's an IPO or just building a great business? They have to make something that actually makes people's lives better. Like, it's, it's funny how straightforward it is. People often think that business requires some sort of trickery. You have to like corner the market in something or something like that. But actually, what you have to do is you have to make people's lives better. And the amount of value that you create is this sort of rectangle where one side is the number of people and the other side is how, many, you know, how much you make their life better. Big rectangle, big value, you're rich. <laughs> it's really that simple, huh? <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only. I... I still think I still think my Uber for dog trees could make people's lives better. I, I, I it's on it's on the table. It. It's on the table, Chad. Nothing is dead. Yeah. But but we should just take a moment here. Like this one is where he's talking. This is the outcome of it. If you focus on your users, if you're as Paul said, if you're an expert in your users, then you will have a product that makes people's lives better. And I cannot emphasize this enough. I mean. There must be a problem. You must have a solution. Your user must experience real pains and frustrations, and you've got ways of not only relieving those pains, but also making these things called gain creators, like helping them get the job done, being the person that they want to be. And Paul frames it in this idea, you know, make people's lives better. If you make enough of a difference in improving people's lives, they will be prepared to pay for it. And I, I want to give you this, this interesting example, Chad. If you think about which apps you're prepared to pay for, the real threshold is when you pay five or 10 bucks for an app on your phone or when you really pay uh, for bespoke content or a course, 
It's because it makes a meaningful contribution and either helping you learn or entertaining you. This is the threshold of which all products can make people's lives better, how they can succeed. Mm -hmm. And it's the litmus test. If people use your app once and throw it out, if people are not prepared to pay for your product, then what you'll know is you're not making their lives better inside of that you haven't found a problem worth solving. Yeah. It, this wisdom from Paul, I don't think is really anything new. You know, I mean, certainly it goes way back into the philosophical traditions, you know, uh, Jesus's golden rule and even further back beyond that of if you're seeking to create more value in the world, you know, it will come back to you. Mm. In, in the frame of startups, you know, it's like, well, we create, you know, we make people's lives better and then they pay us. It's a little twisted because of, you know, the investment VC world where oftentimes I feel like there's a lot of uh, kind of bloated uh, valuations and companies taking money just to take money and they, you know, they don't have functioning business models. But for the companies that are going to last, you know, they're truly providing more value than anyone else in the marketplace. I mean, I, I have just a funny example from last night. I have always poo-pooed all of the delivery startups. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to name names, but, it, you know, <laughs> th- this company, you know, d- delivers anything anywhere, you know, to you, you know, th- those kinds of services. I'm like, really? Do we need that? But last night, you know, my wife had some really great news from work and we wanted to celebrate. And she's like, oh man, I really want Shake Shack. Um, for those of you that don't know Shake Shack, <laughs> it's, it's a great burger joint here in, in the New York City area and others, you know, started by Danny Meyer, the great restaurateur, just, you know, b- big, huge craving. But for us to like go there and back in the cold, it, you know, it would have taken us over an hour and a half. And you know, we just wanted, we just wanted to have our Shake Shack and, and watch our Netflix. Um, so I got on the app store, got the, uh, the delivery app and I was more than happy to pay the, the service and delivery fee to, to get that, that Shake Shack. So, you know, that's a small example of the startup, you know, truly making my life better. But as you said, you know, I was willing to, to, to pay for it. Absolutely. And, I, I and so, down, you know, I, I, we could have walked there and, and back or ridden a bike or something, but, you know, we were willing to pay for that convenience. Yeah. And, and inside of that, you put a value on your time and said, well, I could rescue that time and, and inconvenience of, you know, weathering a, a New York uh, January winter. Um, and you're like, okay, so how much extra do I pay? Yeah, sure. That's, that's worth it. And then that's where this, this service made your life better because they solved a problem that's worth solving. And this architecture of solving problems worth solving so that you can make people's lives better, um, to me, this is the essence of startup. And the way in which you get there is you have great founders and you spend a lot of time with your founders, a lot of time with your customer, and you will get there. Everything else is a distraction in the beginning and early stages. So business modeling something to death, working out you know, a 10-step marketing program, forget it. Build something that makes such a difference that your customers will go and sell it on your behalf to other customers. This this is one of the most powerful ideas that we can get from, from, from Paul. And it's like, make people's lives better. I mean, how powerful is that, Chad? Yeah. There's a bit of a gotcha in, in, in that too, because you can take that too far and put your head down and only build. You can try to over-optimize the product in, you know, in a vacuum, not close to the customers. And an essay that I mentioned by Paul, and he he kind of elaborates on it here in this very next clip, is you don't have to build the app for the thing. If in the case of this delivery service, you don't have to have the app that places the order, that automatically prints the label, that contacts the driver to do the GPS, you know, to find the optimal route sort of thing. You can do it in a much more manual or as as you and I say often, kind of a concierge type manner. And so here's Paul, in some ways, kind of advocating against building too much of the product, or, you know, baking it in too much and doing things much more in a manual fashion. A lot of the things that we teach uh, startups at Y Combinator, or you teach startups at Y Combinator, I'm retired. I don't know if you know that. Um, 
that a lot of things you guys teach startups is um, are things that I hit myself and didn't realize that they were actually common startup lessons. So one of them is doing things very manually for your early customers. Like it's so important to get early customers that if you have to do a ton of manual stuff, that's okay. You'll learn a lot from it. Did you guys do manual stuff? Yes. At, oh yes, web totally. And we thought, oh, we're doing it wrong. This is so lame. And in fact, it was exactly the right thing. We made an online store builder. Um, you could build a store on the internet and sell stuff. And uh, we would go to would-be um, would customers and say, would you like to use our easy online store builder? And they would say, no. Um, <laughs> and, and we would say, but you want an online store, right? And they would say, yeah. And, and they would say, well, what if we use, we would say, what if we used our software for you to make an online store and then you could have it? Would that be good? And they'd say, all right. Um, and so we'd like, ah, we can't get anyone to use our software, but at least they're willing to let us use it for them. Um. So, so, so important. What, what I find, this, this idea of manually, I, I think we just need to break that down a bit. What he's talking about is often you might have like a web page up, you'll be promising a service, but there's lots of manual work happening in the back that in the long term, or even at that point may appear to the customer to be sort of automated, but it's actually happening manually. Don't worry about um, the fact that it's not automated. And what he's trying to advise against here is don't uh, do what Eric Ries talks about, what he did in his $40 million mistake. They spent so much time building the perfect automated product mm -hmm. that they deferred actually having anything at all in front of a customer. So when they finally got it there, they had over-engineered this thing that nobody wanted. So where this is really coming from is get something up, fake some of the, the automation in the background. That's okay because you might learn some important lessons which will change how you think about the, the, if you will, the back end of the product. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think people would be really surprised at how many startups started as email capture forms and spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> and the other, the sort of knock-on effect, which is a real positive here, is you start to really understand the business flows inside of your product and how it really works and how it actually you might find that there's some simple workarounds or what I also find is that a lot of founders realize that something is way more complex than they first thought. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this is so important because then you don't make all these big guesses and assumptions uh, about how the product's going to roll out when you actually have no real idea about some of those complications that you're going to run into. Yeah, I, I think much of what you and I experienced uh, when we were working together with companies launching new business lines or trying to create new 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 products or, or web apps, there's a difference between it like it's 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 a bit of a fine line, but you can often be too prescriptive in what you're trying to force the user into or the customer into versus kind of leaving some breadcrumbs and letting their experience emerge kind of over time. So in, in that mode, you're much more responsive to actually what the customer is doing in real life, mm. as opposed to like putting together this nice, pretty, shiny, we have logical flows for every single app, potential action that the user may take kind of thing. And yeah. it's, it's optimizing for learning versus optimizing for like polishedness. And I, that, that's really kind of what I'm taking away from. Uh, you know, manual may be ugly, but you're going to learn a whole lot more and save time as opposed to being very prescriptive and having something nice and pretty and polished. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The danger that Paul is pointing out here is don't build this enormous first-generation product in the absence of customers. And this is where if you had Paul Graham and Eric Reese in a room, they would be in violent agreement. It's all about get something and out quick, learn, iterate, and, and work iteratively towards the perfect product. Don't try and bake it 
the first time because what you'll do is you'll just make the mother of all assumptions that will make it very hard for your for your business uh, to succeed. And and frankly, this is just one of the many challenges that startups face, isn't it, Chad? I mean, there's so many challenges, there's so many obstacles uh, along the path, things that might not only present challenges, but things that might even kill us off, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's funny, as, as you were just speaking, I figured out how I'm going to test my Uber for dog treats idea and take Paul Graham's advice. <laughs> okay, come on, tell us. Okay. So the, the wrong thing to do would be, you know, t- to go on to Upwork and hire a programmer and build my app and, right, so that's not what I'm going to do. So I, I think... I, I'm not actually going to tr- test out this idea, but I think this uh, thought experiment might be useful <laughs> for yeah. for me and the audience. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the dog park and pass out business cards with my phone number on it. And whenever they need dog treats, they're just going to text me. <laughs> and then every time, because I know they're all in the neighborhood, right? So they're kind of like within walking or biking distance. I'm going to go and negotiate a deal with the uh, pet store that I get a slight discount on uh, on yeah. pet treats. And then, uh, yeah, I'll just be getting texts throughout the day and I'll, uh, I'll hop on my bike and uh, go and deliver them. And if there's enough demand, maybe then I'll uh, take some of the proceeds and, uh, and build an app. How's that sound? Okay, I'm sold. Uh, I, I'll be an advisor, investor, or just advocate number one. You put, put me down, Chad. I'm starting my Y Combinator uh, application right now. I'm download it, go to the website and download it now. Uh, but um, seriously, the, the humor, humor aside, I'm kind of curious of your critique and how I'm applying uh, the advice Paul's giving us. I, I think you are ticking many of the, the boxes for not only him, but many of our sort of innovators and, and entrepreneurs that we've studied, which is, you're going to get out of PowerPoint, you're going to get out of your office and you're going to go do something and try it. And I think that is not only going to get the approval of Paul Graham, but many of the other people that we've had on the show. So good job, Chad. Uh, Report back. And if you do that test about 10 or 20 times, you might seriously discover a real need in the marketplace. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I'm realizing that... um there are the bark boxes of the world and the chewy.coms where where many if not all of these needs can be met but uh going back to what paul was saying about how to come up with startup ideas just uh, sitting and thinking of of ideas is probably not going <laughs> to give you a very brilliant idea i think you've proven proven that out <laughs> but the the um the wisdom of Paul is not only inspiring us to really focus on the team, to focus on your customers and uh, really get into it. He's also got some really powerful thinking. And this is really the warning, the watch out sign that he has for us. If we're, if you, so if you're listening to this and you're thinking about a product or maybe you've just started working on a product, this next a clip from Paul is really, really important. He's talking about what truly kills startups. So let's have a listen to Paul Graham. They make something that users don't like. They make dog food that dogs do not like to eat. That is the killer of all startups. They build something that users look at and they say, eh, that's what so kills so as, the back button. Well, well, talk more about that because I want to know as an investor, what do you do? Obviously, Every company's first iteration is not its best. What do you yeah. do to try to, when do, when do you know to, to, to fish or cut bait? Well, the first iteration may not be very good, but as long as you get it out there very quickly, it doesn't matter as, if, it's, if it's not great because you start the conversation with users and users will say, oh, well, I sort of like this, but I wish you would do such and such. And then you do such and such. Um, and you repeat that process 200 times or so, and then you have something really good. Yeah, it's kind of the inverse of his make make things that make people's lives better. If you don't do that, then then you're going to die. Yeah, the the um, the threshold. Once again, you can see how important the three investors that we've covered so far: Warren Buffett, you know Ray Dalio, and and now Paul Graham. They all have very straightforward ideas or principles. These they're almost like mantras, aren't they? Um, you know, build a product that makes people's lives better, 
you know, these, you know, Ray Dalio even calls them principles. He, he wrote a book about these principles. Isn't it interesting how um, clear all three of them have been about what works and what doesn't? And I mean, in this case, Paul Graham was really clear about this is what failed, this is what's going to get you on the fast track to failure. I think it's really interesting insight of how clear they are on their investment thesis or their their business paradigms, their business mantras, their business principles. They're all very clear, aren't they, Chad? Well, they have to be. They're all of them are evaluating hundreds, if not thousands, of potential ways to use their their capital. And someone like Warren Buffett has lots and lots of life and business experience, maybe not as like codified and programmatic or algorithmic uh, rule investment rules as Ray Dalio. But it's interesting to see, like, as you're framing it, Mike, like Paul Graham's not very different from them because he's not investing in Fortune 500 companies. He's investing in, in founders that have an idea for maybe what could become uh, a big company. But I'm sure they get thousands and thousands of applications. They probably have between 50 and 100, you know, startups going through Y Combinator in any given year. Just the sheer numbers of of opportunities that he and the team had to sift through like necessitates that they have these fairly simple rules that they can apply to deciding whether the 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 founding team is is worth investing their time and their their money in. Yeah, the the um the 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 question I'm thinking about is okay, what do we do, Chad? You and I and our listeners, what do we do hmm. if we can see that pattern in our investor series that all of these successful people have these very clear principles of what works and what doesn't, uh, and they certainly seem to have this as a checklist for every opportunity or idea that they look at. Um, and this is what has optimized their success. So well, what's the call to action? What do we have to do in order to be uh, successful in the way they are? What, what, do we, what behaviors do and habits do we develop because of this insight? Hmm. So you and I do not have billions of dollars or even, even millions. And let's, let's be honest. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. yet. I don't know. An interesting way that I'm kind of thinking about it is that every idea or project that you and I have right now, or even potential client or potential customer, we can begin to look in our, our past, see what worked and what didn't work when it came to successful projects great client engagements, et cetera, and begin to create some of our own rules. I, I'm probably going to steal a lot mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. from from people that we've uh, that we've discussed. But yeah, maybe just come up with a couple of rules for myself that's like, you know what, with new clients, it really is about uh, having a good rapport with them and an open, transparent uh, communication, right? So I just came yeah. up with a rule um, off the fly and how... I can help ensure successful client engagements going yep. forward. So that's kind of so it's it's almost like my own ideas, projects, and clients and customers are kind of like the little investment vehicles um, that I'm yeah. evaluating. And I think that um, like creating your little rules or your checklist or your mantra is a really, really powerful thing to write down. Right, like write it down. Yeah, well, I've got some yeah. post-its. Uh, in the, in the way I actually do it, this might be a helpful framework. Uh, I learned it I, from a client of mine. You just choose, I might have even shared this on the show. I can't remember. Uh, it's blank, even over blank. Okay. So, so for me, like when it comes to my creative projects uh, or just projects, period, I am optimizing for creation, even over consumption. Ooh. Tell us more about that. Expand on that for us. Uh, one way it's manifested is I deleted the YouTube app from my phone and I've blocked it from my laptop because I want to be, so for all my projects this year, I want to be more creative and I want to generate more things, whether it's more more Mm. podcasts or more episodes with you or just anything. So I'm optimizing for creation even over consumption. So that's, and I have several other ones like that, but that was kind of the one that, that jumped out. So it's like, um, 
a really simple way for you, or for, for me and, and for you and our listeners to just kind of set your priorities straight. So if like kind of, you know, you know which one yep. to choose yep. and it can just kind of be your hit list or your bullet point list of like, yep, I'm, I'm hitting all of these. And so, yeah, it's, it's a go, no go. Three out of four right. is a go, two out of four is a no go right. kind of thing. And if our listeners want to find out more about this idea of blank, even over blank, where can they go to, to find out more about it? It sounds like a very interesting little framework. I just, I picked it up working with a client. They, uh, they're a management consultancy that helps install those kinds of rules and strategies inside of large organizations to actually help them with just decision-making. That is, I, yeah. That's, I don't even know where I'm stealing it from, but <laughs> like, I don't know this. I don't know the source. So one, one of the things that I do is in my Todoist app, which is my uh, task management app and list app, I write down all the mantras that I think are really essential truths just to having a good day. So things like active body, active mind, uh, focus on things that matter, do your most important uh, work first. I'm just reading from them as they are, are here. A good day starts with a good sleep from the night before, you know. I've actually got all of those, written, like hundreds of them written down here for, and I just go and if I have a moment, I'll just, you know, when I'm traveling or, or whatever, I'll, I'll actually read through those just to kind of remind myself, you know, even be relentless is one of the things that, that, that is in there. And what's really interesting is that there is ton that we can learn from Paul, Paul Graham of Y Combinator, from how we start ideas through genuine interest, almost hobby-like uh, pursuit of them, um, and going right into this real obsession with users and with your co-founders, because those people will give you the ideas. Those ideas will become great products. Those products can become a great business. And along the way, keep in mind that uh, if you make something that doesn't solve a problem, you'll, it'll be all over before you know it. And whether you are gr greatly successful or it's a miss, this thing will take over your life. And I think in Paul Graham, we've found somebody who's got gosh, such a spectrum of wisdom and he shares so much of it online at startupschool.org and on his own blog. I think we've been very fortunate to learn his lessons. And I think that, you know, Chad, just to, to kind of zoom out a bit more, I think what we've seen here is he's got these clear ideas, these mental models, these mantras, um, and this has been one of the big themes that we've seen in successful people the clarity of their mental models. They know what they do well. They know what they don't do well. Warren Buffett famously says, I don't invest in tech because I don't understand it. I mean, this, once again, we are seeing regardless of the business of the person, um, there are these essential rules that we're uncovering that drive innovation and entrepreneurship, don't you think? Mm. Yeah, it, it's been fun to profile these investors, I think, because they're so kind of rules-based and very analytical in how they approach things. Um, it's not to say that there haven't been, like Bill Belichick comes to mind, like if there was ever a, you know, the investor rules principled person of sports, it would be him. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, there's an interesting rigor to their work that I think a lot of us can can learn from. So it's been really fun to to learn from them. Yeah. But the series is not over. We have another investor, you know, former startup guy uh, that we're going to be profiling on our next show, Peter Thiel and mm. his you know, PayPal, the PayPal Mafia and his fund, the Founders Fund. Um, so I'm really excited to round out our investors series uh, talking about Peter. He is super, he is one of the smartest guys uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship and innovation, obviously has great pedigree, you know, PayPal as a founder, but, you know, uh, the big thing, you know, if you want to talk about investment creds, he was the very first investor in Facebook. So enough said. What a fantastic uh, way to to wrap up the investor series on our next show. I've loved doing Paul Graham, uh, uh, Chad, and I think I really want to remind our listeners to head off to moonshots.io to get all the show notes, all the links to all the different 
things and ideas that we've mentioned in this show. I can't wait uh, to to do Peter Thiel. I, I'm I'm really pumped, Chad, because like as we just said, the clarity of their mental models and their rules and principles that really is what is separating these these investor types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know this is our first show, 2019. Mike and I have so much in store for you, the listener. Uh, we really appreciate all the feedback and emails that you sent to us at hello at moonshots.io. And um, also the uh, the ratings uh, that you've left on the iTunes store. You know, every uh, every ratings uh, give, you know gives us a boost and, and spreads the show. Uh, so thank you in advance for doing that. Absolutely. All right, Chad. Let's get you off into the night in New York. I have to enter into the morning here in Sydney. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and can't wait to do the next show with you and our audience. So thank you to everyone. It has been wonderful to continue our investor series. And that's it for the show on Moonshots Podcast. Thanks again, everyone. That's a wrap. 